Thanks, Charlie. Do open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. It'll be really helpful to look on at that as we have a think about it. Uh, It's on page 1054 in the church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, just pop your hand in the air and one should appear by you at any moment. So we're on page 1054, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. Well, it was the final week uh, before Jesus' death. It was the final week before Jesus' death, and what's more, he knew that it was. Way back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus set out from Galilee in the north of Israel for Jerusalem, knowing that he was going there to die. He'd arrived uh, just, just before our chapter in chapter 19 to the worship of the crowds. And in a couple of days since his arrival, he's been teaching the good news in the temple courts. But the atmosphere is tense, to say the very least. Uh, think question time in Parliament when they're talking about Brexit. Uh, that's the level of tension going on here. Glance back at the end of chapter 19 and verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Can you imagine it? The people can't get enough of Jesus. He's hands down winning the popularity contest with the people, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people are trying to kill him. Can you... uh, What's going to happen? They've had run-ins before already since his arrival, and they have another one at the beginning of chapter 20. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders all come to Jesus and ask him where he's getting his authority from. Jesus refuses to give them a straight answer, uh, but as they go off to the side and grumble together, Jesus teaches the people his final parable. We've been looking at stories that Jesus told, and this is the last one that we have recorded that Jesus told. And it's a doozy. It feels to me like a different magnitude of parable than the others, where the meaning of his other parables was veiled to the extent that he'd have to explain them, even to his disciples after he told them. In this parable, the meaning is crystal clear. You know when someone is uh, slightly embarrassed to, to ask a question, uh, maybe about some kind of embarrassing medical issue, and they say, oh, I, I'm asking for a friend. Well, it's as obvious to Jesus' hearers what this parable is about as it is that that person is really asking for themselves. It's that thinly veiled. It's uh, clear what and who the parable is about, and the message of the parable is shocking and inflammatory to the extent that the people, having heard it, respond by saying, God forbid. And the teachers of the law and the chief priests, knowing full well that Jesus was telling this parable against them, redouble their efforts to have him arrested and killed. So what is this extraordinary parable? Well, it begins in verse 9. Have a look down at it with me. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Now, I hate to have to pause this early in the story. Uh, I know you want to know what happens, uh, but Jesus' original hearers are already a step ahead of us, uh, one sentence into the parable, and I don't want us to get left behind. We might hear of a man planting a vineyard and think, oh, it's a nice thing to do, how pleasant. But first century Israelites may well have heard of a man planting a vineyard and thought, ah, this may well be a reference to God. 
Jesus' audience knew their Old Testament back to front, and they knew that Israel is often referred to as a grapevine uh, planted by God in the Promised Land. There are references to this time and again in the Old Testament. Uh, One really obvious one is what's called the Song of the Vineyard, which we find in Isaiah chapter 5. It begins like this. I will sing for the one I love a song of his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it in with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The temple itself, where Jesus was telling this parable, was decorated with carvings of grapevines. So central uh, was that imagery. Uh, in the Old Testament and to God's people. So the people are thinking, okay, so this vineyard planting man could be God. Uh, So who are the tenants? Well, maybe those that God left in charge of his people, the chief priests and the elders. And remember that even as Jesus is saying this, the chief priests and the elders are standing off to the side, uh, listening in. You could cut the tension with a knife. What's going to happen? Well, verse 10 At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. We, like Jesus, our first hearers are thinking, fair enough, this is his vineyard. He's entitled to some of the fruit of the vineyard. But we read on. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. So far, everything fits uh, with the owner of the vineyard being God and the tenants being the leaders of God's people. God, in the Old Testament, had established his people in the promised land. Uh, He'd given them priests and kings, and like the owner of the vineyard, he'd sent his servants to them. Each time his people turned away from him, he sent his servants, the prophets, to remind them who he was and of their relationship with him. But they were ignored, mistreated, and even killed. Back in chapter 13 of Luke, uh, in verse 34, Jesus says of Jerusalem, 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 you who killed the prophets and stoned those, who, and stoned those sent to you. It had happened right up to Jesus' time uh, with John the Baptist, the last great prophet sent to God's people before uh, the arrival of the Messiah, being killed by King Herod. So the first five sentences of Jesus' parable sum up the whole of God's history with his people up until that point, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years up until the then present day. So what would happen next? Well, take a look down at verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Uh, For us, with access to the New Testament, we have one up on Jesus' original hearers now. Any doubt that the owner of the vineyard is God falls away, and we know full well that his son in the parable, uh, who his son in the parable represents, uh, because God has used the exact same language of Jesus at Jesus' baptism, back in Luke chapter 3, where God the Father says of Jesus, "'You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased.'" So the owner of the vineyard has made his plan, and the story continues on in verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
having summarized all of God's history with his people, how he established Israel to be his chosen people, how he sent the prophets one after another to remind his people who he was and who they were in relationship with him, he finally decided to send his son. The parable teeters for a moment uh, in, in the present, like a perfectly balanced seesaw, while even as Jesus tells of the tenants uh, seeing the son and plotting against him, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, uh, if you like, the tenants of Israel, are listening in and plotting against God's son. After lingering for a moment in the present, the parable carries on uh, into the future, looking ahead just a couple of days to when uh, the, the elders and the teachers of the law would be successful in having Jesus killed. We see not just what would happen in, in a couple of days, but also what would happen as a result of that uh, from halfway through verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. I don't know, but I guess you might think that there's a certain justice in the actions of the vineyard owner at this point. The death of his beloved son follows uh, the, following the repeated mistreatment of his servants, one after the other, leads to the death of the tenants and the vineyard being given to others. And I suppose that Jesus' original hearers would have thought that that was fair as well, but that begs the question, why their shocked response? And not just shocked, but saying, let it not be. They say, God forbid. It's because as fair as it might be, they understand the meaning of the parable. It's perfectly clear to them that the parable means that following the death of the son, God's favor will pass on from Israel. They will no longer be his people, but the blessing will be given to others. They say, God forbid. But Jesus says, no, God planned it. We're told in verse 17 that Jesus looks directly at them. It's quite chilling. Jesus fixes them with a stare that is deadly serious and says, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The people couldn't have denied knowledge that that had been written. It comes from Psalm 118, and that's the very psalm that the people had been quoting from a few days earlier when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they were crying out from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalm also says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus makes clear that this uh, points to the fact that though he would be rejected by the human leaders of God's people and even killed by them, though he'd be treated by them as the son was treated by the tenants, he would prove greater than them, like a stone rejected by the builders, uh, which ends up being the most important stone in the whole building. And at the end of Luke and in the beginning of Acts, Luke's second book, uh, we see that that's the case, that what the parable predict actually happens as we see the apostles established as the leaders of God's new people, those who trust in Jesus. Now, verse 19 makes it clear that the teachers of the law and the chief priests knew all too well that Jesus was telling this parable against them. Uh, they started uh, looking for a way to arrest him immediately as a result. But let's not think that the parable being told against the religious leaders um, of, of God's people 2,000 years ago means that it has nothing to say to us today. Let's not sit back and think, 
thank goodness I'm one of those that the privilege of being one of God's people passed on to after these terrible people treated him so badly. Yes, Jesus told this parable against the chief priests and the elders of, of the Israelite people, but let's not think that it doesn't have application for us. I want us to take away at least three things from this parable today. One uh, is the father's kindness, also the tenant's rejection, and finally, the son's vindication. But first, the father's kindness. One thing that's made clear in this parable is the extraordinary kindness of God. This is not a parable about a vengeful, angry landowner, but it's a parable about a supremely patient and long-suffering landowner. He planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers. It was still his vineyard. It had only been rented out. It still ultimately belonged to him. And as such, he was entitled to some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants, though the vineyard wasn't theirs, refused to acknowledge his ownership, wanting the vineyard and all its produce for themselves. Some might say that the owner of the vineyard would have been perfectly justified in kicking out his tenants after the mistreatment of the first servant that he sent. But he sent another. And when that didn't work, he sent another still. And when faced with the same mistreatment, yet again, his extraordinary patience held out. In fact, he wanted to make it work so badly that he sent his own son, the heir of the vineyard, whom he loved. There's every reason to believe that if the tenants had respected him, uh, had respected the son, then all would have been forgiven. Why else would he have sent the son at that point instead of kicking them out after the mistreatment of the first three servants? It's only with the rejection and murder of the beloved son that the owner turns to justice, having first shown completely unmerited patience and kindness to his tenants. And this is what God reveals himself to be like in his word. In Exodus chapter 34, God describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. We've seen already that God proved himself to be like this uh, with, with his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. How, though they rejected his prophets time and again, still his patient, patience endured on. Until finally he sent his own son, whom he loved, the heir, uh, through whom and for whom everything was made. He sent Jesus, and he sent him knowing what would happen. But he still sent him in order to reconcile him, his people to himself. Such is his extraordinary kindness. And if we're Christians here today, we'll no doubt be aware of that kindness because we've experienced it for ourselves. We'll know that our own lives have been like many versions of this parable. Our very lives are a gift from God, and yet we've ignored him time and again, wanting to be owners of our own lives, uh, not wanting to acknowledge him. And yet... He has shown extraordinary kindness to us, ultimately sending his beloved son to die in our place uh, so that if we uh, trust in him, we will not be treated as we deserved, as the tenants were, but with a level of kindness that welcomes us as heirs along with Jesus. If we know this kindness, then an appropriate response must be thankfulness. 
If you're anything like me, it's all too easy to slip from thankfulness into complacency or even entitlement. That's why it's so important to continue in remembering God's extraordinary kindness to us and renewing our thankfulness to him day by day in light of it. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, you're here today, you're very welcome, uh, let me suggest that God is showing his kindness to you even now. The fact that you're here uh, getting to hear Jesus tell this parable shows God's kindness to you and his patience with you in showing the lengths that he's gone to uh, so that you might come to know him. If we see God's kindness to us, then we need to decide how we're going to respond to it. The tenants, failing to see the kindness of the vineyard owner's actions, didn't respond rightly, ultimately leading to their own downfall. And that brings us to our second takeaway, which is the tenant's rejection. The tenants rejected the landowner. On the face of it, it might look like they only rejected his servants and his son, but ultimately they rejected him because his servants and his son were his representatives. And it was personal as well. We might say that it was just business uh, when the tenants rejected the servants. Uh, they, were, they were only the, the landowner's uh, employees. It was just business, that's all. But when he sent his son, who he loved, it got really personal. It wasn't just business. It was a rejection of the vineyard owner himself, an attempt to cut off any possibility of his continued ownership of the vineyard by killing the heir. And the motive of the tenants was that they didn't want to be tenants. They wanted to be owners. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And that's just what the Bible teaches us that sin is like. I've heard sin described to children um, using an, an acronym for, for sin, which says, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. Shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. It's just what the tenants are saying to the vineyard owner. And it's what we naturally want to say to God. He's the one in charge. He has a right to be. He made everything. Everything is his, including us. And what's more, it's wonderful that he's in charge because he is completely good and loving and kind and just. It's not only true that he's in charge, it's also really, really good news. But still, by nature, we don't like it. Because like the tenants, we want to be in charge. When it comes to our lives, we want to run the show. Shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. But the parable shows us where that attitude ultimately lands us. Far from getting what they want uh, through their rebellion, the tenants' rejection of the son leads to their being rejected themselves. They reject, and as a result, they are rejected. They reject the son, and that is what, in the end, brings the patience of the vineyard owner to an end. And the tenants are rejected and ultimately killed. It's what awaits us uh, if we persist in rejecting God and the son that he sent. It's true that God is extremely kind and, patience with us, and patient with us. He gives us every opportunity but if we ultimately refuse to acknowledge him, if we ultimately reject him, it will lead to our own rejection. Like the tenants, it will lead to death. Wonderfully, though, 
while rejection leads to rejection, acceptance leads to acceptance. The elders and the teachers of the law and the chief priests reject Jesus and were themselves rejected. In fact, their whole establishment was brought down uh, with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And that course of action, rejecting Jesus, is one that's open to us today. But it's not the only course of action that's open to us. We can choose instead to accept him, to acknowledge him as God the Son and depend on his death in our place, taking the punishment we rightly deserve for acting like the owners of our own vineyards. If you're someone who's not accepted Jesus up to this point, that doesn't need to be a fixed state. It's not too late. God is patient and kind. You can still choose to accept him. In fact, maybe you've reached a point where you feel that now you can. And if that's so, there is nothing stopping you from doing that today. If you're not quite there yet, um, I encourage you to come on our Alpha course uh, next month. In God's kindness, it will be another opportunity to find out more about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I know that many of us, though, will already have uh, made our choice and chosen to accept Jesus. If that's the case, then we can rejoice in the full assurance that having accepted the Son will be accepted by the Father. And not just accepted, but included as inheritors with Jesus, daughters and sons of God who will inherit eternal life with him. It's a wonderful truth to think about and be gladdened by. But if that is us, then that initial acceptance of Jesus will have started a new life for us where we'll need to accept him daily, where each day we'll need to resist the temptation to reject him in the thousand little ways we could and see him as the Lord of our lives. It's the right way to live because he is Lord. We see that in our final takeaway, the vindication of the Son. I wonder if Jesus' hearers thought that it was a bit strange uh, that Jesus was speaking about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone, uh, given that the son ends up dead in the parable. How could he become the cornerstone, the most important person, uh, when he'd been killed by the tenants? Well, there's no need for us to uh, puzzle it out, though, because we know that while just days after Jesus told this parable, he was, in fact, as the parable predicted, killed by the religious authorities. He didn't stay dead. He defeated death. He rose again and ascended into heaven and now sits at the Father's right hand. He's been vindicated and glorified. And he's coming back from there. It's why rejection of him is still so serious today. Jesus says in verse 18, "'Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces.'" Anyone on, whom it will be, anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Really strong words. A time is coming when the last patient, kind chance will be given, and then Jesus will return as a judge. He's returning as a judge, but wonderfully, as it says in Romans chapter 10, if, we, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We need not be the ones that stumble on the cornerstone. Instead, we can accept him as our Lord. And our understanding of what that means, that Jesus is Lord, will grow as we grow as Christians. 
and see that the vindicated Lord Jesus should be Lord of every area of our lives, Uh, not just Sundays or, or when we're at home group, but that in everything we do, in all parts of our lives, we're to acknowledge him as the cornerstone and live lives that accept him, uh, not reject him. God is extremely kind. His kindness endured his Old Testament people, rejecting his prophets one after the other, right through to sending his own beloved son. And though he too was rejected, he's been vindicated. He is alive and reigns, so we can choose, instead of rejecting him and being rejected ourselves, to accept him and be accepted as heirs along with him. Let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your extraordinary kindness. Thank you for your wonderful patience with us, uh, that you are a a God of second chances, uh, that you give us opportunity after opportunity to accept you. And thank you that you uh, didn't uh, stop with your prophets, but that you sent your own son who you loved uh, to die for us uh, so that we can accept him and not be rejected as we deserve. Father, we are, we are sorry for all the ways that we, we reject him uh, day to day, all those tiny denials of him. We pray that you would strengthen us to accept him in every situation, to acknowledge him in all we do as, as the cornerstone in our lives and as Lord over our lives. Thank you that with the death of your son, uh, things didn't end there, but that you did uh, uh, pass uh, the the kingdom on to others. Uh, Thank you for them, and pray that you would lead us in in following the the teaching and the example of Jesus' apostles in our lives as we acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Amen.